1: Welcome to Reppin. Today, I've got a few questions to kick things off. Can you imagine what it would be like to be 10 years old and needing to protect another child during a war? Or what about immigrating to the U.S. and being separated from your family? Can you also imagine the challenges of breaking into a male-dominated industry, working your way up to becoming a partner, and doing it as an immigrant woman? My next guest has done all of this. She is a partner at ZGF Architects, a major architectural firm in the USA. She's worked on a mix of large scale complex projects ranging from research laboratories, academic facilities, and healthcare buildings. Born in Iran, she's a passionate advocate for diversity and inclusion. At ZGF, she is a founding member of the Diversity and Inclusion Advocacy Group, which focuses on improving the employee experience by promoting a culture of respect and support. Today, get to know Mitra Mamari. Mitra, thanks so much for coming to Repin. Now, I know a little bit about you. I know you're a partner in one of the state's largest architect firms. But I'll be really honest, I don't know much about the field. So you're gonna have to take me to school today. Um, Tell me a little bit about the industry. From what I understand, the architect industry genre, it's dominated by mostly men. So can you tell me what it's like to be in that field?
0: Architecture is really, for me, such an amazing profession because it really creates a possibility and creativity for how we all experience the world and the built environment. So I think it's a really a privilege for me to be part of those conversations, especially at a firm that I work in, where we do very large, very significant projects. I would say that it is a very male dominant and continues to be actually a white male-dominant profession. I think that there's been little stride over the years, but it is hard to navigate. I think it's been hard. And one of my hopes as being a partner now and having a leadership role is to create an environment for not just diversity of gender and race and everything else, because I think sometimes diversity is something that we talk about and we want to create, and it becomes, this poster child of what we're trying to do. But what's really important to me is the inclusion. We can't just have the people at the table and not have that conversation.
1: Absolutely. But let's back that up a bit, because you laid that out really beautifully. I'd love to get a little bit of background on you. You're a partner at ZGF, which is, again, a huge architect firm in the States. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what was it like when you came to the States? Sure. So
0: I was born in Iran in the early 70s, and those times in Iran was very sort of uh, Western culture had come to Iran through the Shah's regime. And so it was very thriving. There was a lot of equality. Women and men were, you know, doing a lot of different professions that typically they wouldn't do. In 1979, the revolution happened. I was in Iran when that happened. tell you a funny bit. I participated in the climate strike, and it totally reminded me of the days when I was eight and nine years old, when I would be in the streets of Tehran protesting. It was just very nostalgic for me.
1: Wait, wait, wait. You were eight when you were protesting in Tehran?
0: That's right. You know, when you're a child of a revolution, you start really early.
1: Yeah, I think I was probably trying to tie my shoes and playing with Barbie dolls. So clearly you had a definite edge on me in terms of social awareness. And then I think that
0: for me, I think the next thing that happened in Iran was the war started between Iran and Iraq. That was in 1981. And that was kind of a very traumatic time in my life as a 10, 11 year old, where I would be in elementary school, I was in third grade, the planes would come to bomb the city, we would hear the sirens, we would have to take shelter, and I had to go protect the first graders. Uh, You know, that's one component of the experience I had very early on. We also came from an affluent family, and because the revolution was all about, you know, for the people, by the people, so affluence was not looked at well. You know, my, my father had worked hard for it, and so there was a lot of ramifications because of that. I had older cousins who were in anti-revolutionary groups who would take a safe haven in our house. Mm. And so then again, we would be prosecuted because of that. So there was a lot of trauma.
1: That's a lot to process. You're 10 years old, you're still a child, and you have to risk your life to protect another child, a first grader, which is crazy on multiple levels. And then to be ostracized because of your affluence Usually, affluence is working for you, or you're someone who is envied. But in your particular case, affluence was a negative, which is an added layer of being completely separated from everyone else. How did that shape you? How did you process all of that? And what did you learn from that? You know, it gave me, and
0: this is a great question, because it gave me an internal strength that really carried me through all of the other challenges that came to my life. You know, and it's it's hard to specifically define it, but I truly believe it. It's just, it's in me that having gone through that, I can really go through anything else and I'll be fine. And just driving through and just uh, and pushing through was, was I think how I internalized it. And in addition to all of those things, one other thing that was happening for my personal family is we were separated. My father, one of my sisters and brothers were in the United States, and my mom and my two sisters got stuck because they closed the border. And so, again, it came to me just, this is my, one of my natures, I'm a, I am a nurturer, I'm also a very curious person. So I would realize my older sister and my mom would be dealing with things And they wouldn't want to tell me because they wanted to protect me. But because I was nosy, I would find out (laughs) what those situations were. But at the same time, I had nobody to go talk to. I had nobody to confide in because I didn't want them to be more worried about me. And I think that's another aspect of my growing up that in this male-dominant profession that I ended up choosing, I became a very self-sufficient, self-motivated person. So I think those two things
1: really play into that. I think that's an understatement. I mean, at this point, what were you like, 10, 11, 12? I was 11. I mean, the situations you're talking about, you really can't get more real than that. I would imagine as painful and and defining as they must have been I can't imagine how you processed all of that as a child I mean at this point you can pretty much go through anything without even flinching right yeah I mean that's kind of like what you realize you know
0: Um, I immigrated to the US when I was a teenager and all of a sudden like the worries completely changed the the landscape completely changed and um, I was very bold when I came to the United States so that, you know, I started junior high and I was adamant that because I knew some English and I had gone to a British school before the revolution, I knew English enough. So I'm like, I'm just going to be in the regular English class and I'm just going to, you know, right. <laughs> and it ended like, so I went there like, oh my God, what are these guys talking about? I went there a second day and I'm like, oh my God, I'm really trying to listen. Why can't I understand? And then on the third day, I had to succumb that, okay, I need to go to English as a second language
1: class. So let's talk a little bit more about when you first came here. Okay, I think it's fair to say you got a little bit cocky, you knew English. But um, can you talk more about what it's like to transition from some of those really intense experiences you had in Iran with tremendous mental and emotional fallout? Um, you know, those are situations that full grown adults would struggle with. And you're 11 to coming to America and being thrusted into a completely different culture. What was it like? Did you have anyone connect with? So I was lucky
0: because my family
1: immigrated.
0: We came to Santa Monica and And I think the reason I'm lucky in that is that there's a huge Iranian community here and in the school I went to. I've been thinking about all my friends in the those those early years, yeah. and they were all Iranian. And I think that that was what grounded me and not feeling that I am so different. You know the culture was very new but having that support was really important. I'll tell you another little story. Yeah. In that same junior high, I decided on my own, without telling my parents, and my parents didn't speak that, that English that well. You know, my older sister became my guardian. It was kind of right. complicated, you know, right. how, that, how that is for immigrants. But I decided without telling anyone else that I was gonna walk into the principal's office, which I did, and say to him that I deserve to skip a grade.
1: What? (laughs) By a fluke, he agreed. (laughs) Wait a second. I know. What made you decide to have the balls to walk into the principal's office to say you should skip a grade?
0: You know, as I was growing up in Iran, all I could hear from people was like the Iranian education was so much better than the American education. (laughs) (laughs) and that you learn so much more. Uh, However silly it may seem like now, I think that was my motivation. Well, I'm Iranian. I went to school there. I mean, you know, I can just give a (laughs) grade. I mean, he did make me take a test on whatever, you know, to make sure that, you know, those qualifications, obviously. But I think that story shares a little bit about who I am, of this boldness that I have, that when I believe in something, I'm just going
1: to go for it. Next time you do something like that, or you're in that mindset, can you just tell me, because I'm just going to step out of the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I'm getting a better sense of your personality. Let's talk about how you decided to become an architect. And when did you decide to break into a field that is still dominated by men? What inspired you? And what were some of your challenges?
0: So here's the story is that my last name Memari in Farsi actually means architect. That's because my grandfather, uh, my father's father was a city planner. I never get, got to meet him, but he lived in a city in northwestern Iran, and he had done all of the city planning, the buildings, he's the design is still there. It was part of kind of me growing up, going to school. I would read up about, uh, you know, May Mari architecture in the textbooks and somehow I would relate to it. Oh, that's about me somehow. That really resonated with me. So I took that. And then when I moved to the States and I had my own room and I would continuously redesign it, I would think about design, I would think about architecture when we would go to san francisco or the cities and so i think that it was just a natural progression i never questioned it like in high school i just knew that i was just going to always be an architect and then i studied at uc berkeley i didn't know what i was in for art because it's one of those professions where you know you're in studio 24 7 trying to get design ideas and projects right. done it was a wonderful not only education for the profession but also like a life experience for me just being in that environment and really coming to my own because this is one thing i'll say on the slide as an immigrant that i feel i have to do which is i come from this iranian culture and then i come to an american culture and they're very different the way the cultures are and at one point and this this happened to me when i was at berkeley i had to decide which parts of the Iranian culture fit within the personality I am and which ones of the American culture I wanted to adopt. You see that the problem with that is that, not the problem, I mean, I think it's beautiful because it it always, I think as immigrants, we always have to question, is this right for me? You know, and not keep something just because it's been done over and over. But then it creates a gap between me and all of my other uh, Iranian American friends and my parents and my family of who you are and the differences.
1: Right. Okay. So you just opened up a bunch of questions for me and you laid that out really beautifully. You touched upon a bunch of different topics about being an immigrant, a person of two cultures, and you bring up a good question that I want to get to first, you know, selecting elements, um, In your case, from the Iranian background and heritage and assimilating some American elements into your life that make you you, how do you figure out which ones work and which ones don't? You bring up a great point. You don't want to throw something away just because it's been done a million times. That doesn't make it not worthwhile. I mean, there's a reason why it's been incorporated multiple times. But how do you decide which elements from each culture to keep?
0: So for my process, it was a lot of internal uh, looking at myself internally and like really evaluating, you know, my mom expects me to do X, Y, and Z. Is that something that is meaningful to me or not? And then having then other tough conversations with her of why and trying to help educate her of why I'm, I'm going a different way. The biggest difference with kind of the cultures of the... Uh, Middle East and you know other cultures is that we're all very insular. We're all very always have to do same things together And with the American culture for me, it was about who am I and why and what's my stance? And I think that was a challenge and this story might help kind of say how I navigated, you know dating was a big no-no in my family and culture and when I graduated from berkeley i was dating a guy that my parents knew and because i was one of those people that i just didn't like to lie to to my family so my parents knew that i was dating this guy and when i got my first job i decided to move in with him oh (laughs) which exactly is like no male cousin and i have 36 from my mom's
1: side you have how many cousins 36 from my mom's side Good luck during the holidays, Mitra. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> so none of my male cousins, none of my female cousins had ever lived with a significant other. I just said, I'm working, and I don't want to regret later in my life that I didn't do this. And he was not Iranian. He was Asian-American, actually.
1: Oh, you came over to my side.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and what's beautiful, again, is that Everybody in my family accepted this. I did not hear one word of, oh my God, what are you doing? That's great. Part of it was me explaining, I don't know if this is going to be long term or not, but I need to test this out and this is the way I can see it. That's how I broke some of the barriers between the cultures
1: and made it acceptable. I'm sure all 10,000 members of your family know to get out of your way. talk about redefining boundaries i think in that just one example that you just talked about you just redefined so many things um like what it's like being a woman in the middle eastern culture you're a partner in a major firm and you're leading the pack so what were some of the challenges that you came up against was there a defining moment can you tell us about that experience and how you navigated that situation
0: So I started ZGF about this October will be 13 years that I've been with the firm and my career is more than 25 years. One of the great things about ZGF is the people. So there's amazing people there. But at that time, there was no female partners at ZGF. And I would say I think they were all uh, except for one maybe uh, white male. And we have five offices in the U.S. and one office in Vancouver, and more than 700 people today. So what were some of your challenges? Early on in the profession, I had to create a presence for myself, because when I was a few years out of school, I would be in a meeting with 20 white men. I was the youngest person and i had to run the meeting and so those experiences created a persona for me in those types of situations which gotten easier and easier for me to navigate as i grew. but i did run into issues and the way i dealt with it was early on i got really mad and i would just disassociate myself with those individuals I just said, I'm going to try to get out of their way so they don't see me and I can just do my own thing. As my career grew, that was not an option anymore. Okay. And I think that when I came into those obstacles, I really evaluated what was the right option for me it was a direct uh, conversation about the situation and how I felt and what it meant to me and that a change needed to take place. Was that appropriate? And I think a lot of times that's where I landed. And I'll be honest with you that, you know, there's one specific incident that happened. Tell us. Yeah. So it was with uh, one of the partners, you know, somebody I do very much respect. We were at a client meeting. It was just him and I with the client. And I'm not sure exactly what I said, but I said something that upset him. Okay. And he kind of expressed his anger towards me, like, you know, not yelling or anything, but just being very red and saying like, well, would you, will you let me finish what I'm saying?
1: So he was really frustrated.
0: Yeah, very frustrated. And then he stormed out of the meeting. So, you know, the clients were, well, what happened there? I'm like, you know, I, I'm not sure, you know. And then after a while that he left, he then came back. He had composed himself. We finished the meeting. And we were walking back to the car and he started to have a dialogue with me to say, oh, I was stressed about something else. And I just said at that moment that I cannot talk about this right now, that I, I needed uh, some time. So I went back the following week and I met with him and I, and our HR representative. And I said to him that this cannot happen ever again. And that was really all I said multiple times. Wow. And he is a guy who is in his 70s, and nobody had ever
1: said this to him. What a defining moment
0: for you both. Exactly. And so I kept saying that we, after that meeting, he thought about it, he came back, and he said, I'm going to do my best to not do that ever again.
1: Mitra, that's amazing. I'm listening to you tell these stories, and these aren't stories that are exclusive to being an immigrant from the Middle East. I mean, let's put that whole Middle Eastern background aside for a minute. But just being a woman breaking into a male-dominated field, that's huge. So what helped you get the strength and the wherewithal to be assertive, to advocate for yourself? And I want to be really clear about this. Putting your foot down doesn't mean you're being a witch or being rude. There's a huge difference between being firm and addressing an issue that needs to be addressed appropriately and standing up for yourself. You know, when women speak up, unfortunately, we're often labeled as a witch or probably another word. What gave you the guts to do it and the insight on how to handle that appropriately? You know, I think, for, you know, looking back,
0: there's this groundedness that I strive for throughout my life, especially with all of that trauma. I was very clear that this kind of situation had happened to me or others by this individual over the years, and I had gotten to my sort of, that's it, to my max. Right. And so that was one aspect of it. I do think, though, what I really did came from care and love. Because I could have been upset. I could have left. I could have done a lot of other things. But I cared for him and I cared enough for myself at this point where I said that, you know, I can accept a lot of things. This I cannot accept anymore. And I have to give this guy a lot of credit. I mean, I don't know if it was the approach. I don't know if it was the sincerity and honesty. But he has really changed. And in your 70s, you know, I work closely with him to this day. I appreciate him. And every time I see him doing a behavior that in the previous years he would have done acted differently, I compliment him. Oh, because goodness. to me, it is amazing. And and I, I think that, you know, wouldn't the world be
1: such a greater place if we took this much care with each other. Absolutely. So being a partner at ZGF, you've had a hand in designing some very large scale projects, projects like the university of Arizona cancer center, the Conrad Hilton foundation head major. Can you talk about the projects you've worked on at ZGF and how you're bringing your personal experiences as someone from Iran and as a woman, um you know and also being a product of two cultures can you talk about how you're bringing all of these elements to your work and your designs
0: uh, i am lucky to have worked on some amazing projects i i guess maybe the one i'll talk about is the the university of arizona cancer center which has won a lot of awards and it's close to my heart for a couple of different reasons one is for what we tried to achieve and successfully were able to achieve there, which was to create an outpatient treatment for cancer, for patients in an environment that didn't look clinical, that felt like a hotel, that felt like you're not going into this sterile space. That was one of the aspirations of our clients, but we really helped to create that patient-centered care These projects are projects that are uh, comprised of very large teams. So I my role on the project was a project management. So there was 10 people or more uh, that were working on the project at CGF, along with a lot of consultants and contractors. One interesting fact, though, is that out of like the 12 team members, 10 of us were women. The two men were the the unique ones. They were the minorities (laughs) in the situation. But I think one of the things I bring to the work is kind of the collaborative teamwork spirit. From a very early age, I just believed in if we can have an open dialogue about different ideas Mm -hmm. and different approaches and be open to that, we will always get to a better place. It's never about, well, what what did I say and why didn't my idea get into the mix? And I think that is something that's very, you know, in the egocentric world of architecture and designers and design professionals, I think that's something that is much needed. All I care about is what is the right thing to do. I don't care who's in the room or am I speaking or I'm not speaking. When you come from this place that I just want to do my best Mm -hmm. and... Get out of my way because I'm just going to do my best. That's how I wake up every morning is with that
1: feeling of that's what I want to do. That's great that you have that in the forefront of your mind. But how about design? How do you bring some of your personal background, heritage to some of the designs?
0: You know, Iran has a huge culture of architecture and design. And so sometimes I've had an opportunity to either work on or bring those thoughts to a project. So for the Conrad and Hilton Foundation, when we designed that building, one of the thoughts were and I, I can't take all the credit for it, but I think that it's kind of, you know, something that uh, just manifested and it's amazing is that in Iran way back, like, you know, three, four hundred years ago or more. Uh, there's a city that's in the desert called Yazd, where they have these chimneys that are wind catchers. They're called bodgears. and that's how they would cool their space in the desert. Is that you know there would be holes at the top of these towers, and air would flow in, and because of buoyancy, it would drop. The cool air would drop, and then it would cool the space inside. So the mechanical system for the Conrad and Hilton Foundation. Is that design.
1: And what about your leadership style, Mitra? How do you bring your personal experiences into your leadership style?
0: Being a woman, one thing that I don't think men do as well or often is I always check in with myself. How did I do? Either asking or reflecting personally to continuously to improve those interactions. You know, I don't think we can control people's perceptions, but we can guide it a little bit by sort of tweaking language. I don't want to not be who I am, but I also want to be sensitive to how my message can be heard better. That's something that will continue. I will continue to have to do with different clients, different environments, different colleagues, everything.
1: Mitra, how does diversity help all of us? you know recognizing that everyone has something to bring to the table how does that make us all better and stronger i think it's inclusion that makes a
0: difference i think diversity is absolutely important and i think that that's something we should continue to strive for i think having people with different backgrounds such as mon around the table is really important to have a bigger world view of the you know of the projects of what we touch of how we experience the buildings we design are experienced by people who come from many different types of backgrounds and if we don't have that voice at the table then how are we going to really have that viewpoint and, and look out for that diversity is really important and that's the pipeline and all of that that I talked about that is important to me but again, maybe in this leadership role, the inclusion part is the is the part that I think uh, I can have more influence uh, on and be, you know, help others to also be aware of that you know, the introverts in the room. Are we asking them, how are we accommodating them? How are we hearing them out? The people who English is their second language and might not have the best way of communication. How are we helping? I do feel that all of that is the responsibility for for the leaders to really set the stage and have others see what they're doing.
1: For people who haven't found their strength or voice, or perhaps still feels marginalized or underrepresented, what would your advice be to them? I mean, I think that this is such a personal
0: experience for all of us individually. What I love about, you know, finding our own voices is that nobody else can take that away when you've found it. So the key is, to me, to have that self-reflection to be educated about what means for you to be grounded, but also to find people that support you, that can help you, see yourself, to, that can help you push you, pull you up. And uh because I think again, I think a lot of times we're so hard on ourselves and we need people that are our champions, that are our cheerleaders. And we need to a lot of those people sometimes around us to really find that voice, know that we belong, know that we matter, and um really I think those are like you know if if we can get to those places, then I think people will have more comfort in that area. But I appreciate it. I come with my background with strength, and i, I and this is a question and a dialogue I constantly have is how can I put myself in the shoes of people who don't have that life experience? And how can I help them? Because my life
1: experiences gave me that. I didn't have a choice. So after this conversation, we've obviously hit on a lot of subjects and elements. How do you define representation?
0: I think for me, I represent immigrant women who every day strive to be better than the day before and to make a difference in this world. Can you sign us
1: off? Let us know who you are and what you represent.
0: This is Mitra Mamari and I represent immigrant women breaking barriers by strategic action.
1: Thank you, Dimitra Mamari, for sharing her time and her experiences with us. What a great conversation. On the next representative we have Adam Jacobs, an amazing actor from Broadway and beyond. He's going to tell us what he thought was his weakness actually turned out to be one of his greatest strengths so check us out on apple podcast stitcher and tune in subscribe share and leave a review also find us on twitter at reppin podcast and follow us on instagram at reppin underscore podcast as always, great thanks to my technical director and musical composer, Mr. Nelson Panero, for lending his time and talents. Thanks and love always to Gracie Kong. Reppin' is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Till next time, stand up and represent.
2: Nowadays, trends and news cycles change faster than we can blink. But there are some things that withstand the test of time. And if you're looking for a connection to something timeless, and maybe also a glimpse of life at a slower pace, I believe everyone can relate to the very human experiences explored in Jane Austen's novels. And that's where I come in. My name is Alison Larkin. I'm a writer, comedian, and narrator and host of The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin. I spent a lot of my childhood in the part of England where Jane Austen lived and wrote, and now that I live in the States, nothing gives me a sense of homecoming quite like narrating her books. On this show, you'll listen to award-winning narration. I'll give myself a pat on the back for that as well as conversations with actors, writers and other fascinating people who all share a passionate love for Jane Austen. So please, join me as we embark on a wonderful journey through Jane Austen's work. Be sure to listen and subscribe to The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin wherever you get your podcasts.